Well, this is a treat. I am honored to have Steve gone. We, we appreciate it when Steve leaves for a while. We can get a hold of his pulpits. Everyone is excited. Jay would have been jumping at the chance to do this, but uh, he's been a little, a little busy. He taught our men's group uh, yesterday morning. It was just a terrific message, and he'll be preaching tonight. And if you've heard him teach in here, you're going to want to be a part of that. It's, it's always just a, a special blessing for that. And I'm honored to be able to uh, to stand in Steve's shoes. Steve, uh, he, where is he? No. Um, he took off to Ohio to go to Joe Divalbus's, uh installation. So he is preaching there and kind of getting Joe off on a good foot there and letting that church see who our church is. And uh, we're honored to have uh, those opportunities for things like that. So Steve, uh, made sense for him to take off for a bit and, and go do that. Therefore, he's not here. Um, so we're going to look at Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, for those of you who have been at Grace Bible Church for any long period of time, Steve has taught through all three of these books, and we have them on uh, MP3 files online. So if you really want to dig into these things, he would spend 30 weeks or so on each of the, uh, the first two books and some phenomenal teaching that kind of develop these notes. Yeah, so I don't have anywhere near the knowledge that he does on this, but if you get a chance and you want to... Uh, to do that, to learn a lot more, um, please, please do that. It's a just been, we really are blessed to have uh, in qual- uh, in-depth quality teaching here. So we're going to look at Philippians in uh, first. Here we go. So first, the introduction, and uh, we're going to get into why all three of them together, but the author is Paul. We all know that. It was written while he was in prison in Rome and uh, awaiting trial there. And the, the dates that we've been able to ascertain are between 60 to 62 A.D. There was a period of time there. It's, it's very clear uh, that that's when it was written. And this book in particular was written to the church in Philippi. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. Uh, remember where, where Philippi started? Uh, Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was called to go over to Macedonia. Um, and Acts 16 is when that happened. And Timothy had just joined him in the, uh, in the mission there that they were doing. And uh, he went to, over there and went to Philippi. Philippi is the very first city in Europe, so it's kind of a new thing. We're now expanding the gospel further into places that had not been uh, having the gospel before in Greece. Uh, Philippi is named after Philip II, who was the grandfather, I'm sorry, the father of Alexander the Great. So that's when the city was established, was, uh, was back then. And uh, it was important to know that that's kind of the, the people know what, what's how they were, how they operated. But because there were a lot of Jews there, but there weren't enough Jews to create a synagogue, which they needed at least 10 Jewish men, they didn't have one. Paul typically, remember, he would go into the synagogue and do preaching, but there wasn't one. So he found some women by the side of the road who were meeting together. They knew uh, of these women that were meeting there, and that's where he congregated with them and started preaching the gospel to them. Philippi was established as a colony for retired Roman soldiers. So these, it was kind of like a, almost a Palm Springs kind of an area. It was kind of away from everything else. And the Roman soldiers who had been, uh, uh, did, did their duty for a certain period of time, they kind of were all retired there. You might recall that uh, when on his uh, first trip to, uh, to Philippi in Acts 16, he got imprisoned. Remember that? And there was a guard there who was kind of like a retired guard that was, was taking care of that prison and... God went and opened up the prison doors, and Paul didn't leave. The rest of the prisoners didn't leave, and the uh, guard there got saved. It was just a, a wonderful story there in Acts 16 there. And uh, God saved that jailer. Um, the leaders then tried to get Paul to leave. Remember that? And, and he said, wait a minute. You arrested me with no purpose. I'm a Roman citizen. You shouldn't do that. And they wanted to get rid of him at that point. They, oh, my goodness, we really messed this up. We shouldn't have done this. Because of that, I think that the Roman government then always had kind of a a soft spot for Paul and kind of let him preach there a lot more and didn't uh, persecute him at the level that they did at some other cities. Um, They didn't touch him again. Well, he went back on his third missionary journey as well, and uh, this town just loved Paul. They loved Paul a lot. Um, 
Philippi was a major city in Macedonia. It wasn't as big as Thessalonica. We have another letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And uh, the church at Philippi was fairly small, but it was influential. It was very important to Paul. Um, and so he really wrote a lot of intentional things to them on how to grow and how to be a, a wise church that works together. The tone of the letter is a, one of friendship and thanksgiving. He was very thankful for them. He loved them. They were just a, a great um, part of his heart because of the ministries he's had historically. Also, you might recall that they gave a very large um, gift to him financially to support his ministry, one of the few that did that. So that's kind of who Philippians were and the the town of Philippi. Some of the themes of the book... First major theme that we hear all throughout it is the gospel. And you just, it's riddled talking about the gospel. The gospel this, the gospel this, that. Especially chapter 1 talks about our partnership in the gospel. So he knew that they were together with him in promoting the gospel. He talks in uh, chapter 1 verse 7 about the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Again, they were defending it. They were well taught. He talks about the advance of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 12. So a lot of gospel-centric things. 116, uh, verse 27, 222, uh, 4, 3. Uh, there were a lot of things there that, uh, that were a part of the gospel. Sorry about that. Um, the second major theme was joy. There's a lot of joy in this book. And it's great to see that. It's not just condemnation. Hey, you guys are doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. It's a joy. And, and not so much that it's a... Uh, how to have joy, but it's an atmosphere of joy that kind of permeates the whole thing. I am joyful at this, and um, it's not the purpose of it, but we see a lot of joy expressed by Paul for the whole relationship there with them. But the gospel is the basis for Paul's joys towards them. Because of the gospel, they have this joy joint together, and that creates the, uh, the joy really towards him that they saw, and vice versa. Third historical uh, theme would be unity. Unity. And this is a really being of the same mind. We see this all throughout. Um, chapter 1, verse 7. Um, we get a, a good example of that. It says, uh, Just as is right for me to think of this of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. And so just seeing that we're doing this together, it's important to do that. Towards the end of the book, we get Paul again pushing unity, the living example of the need for unity within a church. Uh, Yodius and Syntyche, um, they were having a problem with a relationship, and Paul calls them out. Uh, Philippians 4, 2 through 3, I entreat Yodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's calling for the whole church to build unity when when they see that there's disunity between any members in the church. So those are the three ones, the gospel, joy, and unity. The purpose of the whole book that we we can see is Paul rejoiced in the Philippians' partnership in the gospel and exhorted them to be better gospel partners by walking in unity with one another and holding the gospel in steadfastness against the opponents of the faith. So you see all three of those in there um, that we saw as, as the major theme. So that's the purpose of the book that we, uh, we find. The book opens up... Um, and the, the first real imperative in the letter, the, the, the purpose statement we find in, is really in verse 27 of chapter 1. And it says, uh, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we just see this all throughout the book. Unity, gospel, joy as a part of it. So, that's a really important part of the whole thing. And Paul says, don't just be committed to the message of, that we're trying to preach here, but live this out. This should be happening in your lives. You should exhibit everything you're learning as you're maturing in Christ through a life of obedience and a life of unity with uh, your other fellow believers. That's what you should be committed to. The literary structure is, is really easy. Um, this one... 
write this down pretty easy here. It's basically split between four chapters. You've got four chapters in there, and each one has a, uh, a structure to it that makes sense. The first chapter is really talking about suffering. In our suffering, what should we be doing? How do we handle the suffering? He's in prison is where he's writing, and he knows that they're going to be suffering as well. So he covers that. Gospel joy in suffering is what he's after. Let's have joy because we have the gospel, even though we are suffering. In chapter 2, we see it as the same thing, gospel joy in submission. By being obedient to and submitting to leaders and authorities, all different places, we should have joy because of what the gospel does. So gospel joy in submission is chapter 2. Chapter 3 is salvation, a gospel joy in salvation. Because of our salvation, we should have a tremendous joy um, because of what the gospel has done for us. So salvation is kind of the theme of chapter 3. And chapter 4 is sanctification. How do we now live this out? If we have a joy in the gospel, we're supposed to have it. We're supposed to be living our lives now in direct response to the gospel. We should be sanctified. That process of sanctification. So Paul talks about each one of those. Pretty easy. Not that complex of a book. There are a couple um, interpretive issues that uh, we should cover. And the first is Philippians 2, 6, and 8. And let me read this passage here. Um, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What does that mean that he emptied himself? The word kenosis, um, of an emptying. What, what exactly is that? Was that that he emptied himself of his deity? He no longer was God? Or was it that he renounced his divine privileges and the glory that he should have and he, the open exercise of his attributes? Was that what this emptying was? He no longer would, while he was um, incarnate, would be able to do that? Or is, uh, is it a deity taking, just deity taking on humanity? Is he now adding something to what he has in deity? He's adding humanity to it. Well, let's look at the context of that, chapter 2. And uh, he's talking about humility, isn't he? That whole chapter there is, is on submission but humility is, is talking right before that and Christ didn't need to have the outer display of God he emptied himself by subtraction by addition by adding on his humanity it subtracted from him who he was and acting by, by not being able or not using those attributes that he had that were not human. So he retained his, his deity, but he added a human body to it. His human body limited what he could do. He still was God incarnate. Deity took upon himself humanity. So you can see he's adding, and that limited some of the things that he was choosing not to do. So he was, there was a humbling. He didn't hold on to that glory that he had in his deity. He wasn't using that as his leverage in life. Oh, I can just do this and zap and you know, take care of anything that he wanted to, to turn it into something different. We know that he chose not to do that. He could have zapped all those people um, that were coming after him uh, on the cross. He could have done all that, but he said, no, I'm not going to use those forces. So it's not option one. He didn't empty himself of his deity, but two and three both together. He renounced his divine privileges of glory and exercise of his attributes, and then he took on humanity. Does that make sense? So you've got to understand how that happens. He just didn't say, no, I'm no longer God while I'm here. He was fully God and fully man simultaneously. So why the... Um, that, that kind of covers what Steve had here for, uh, for uh, Philippians, should cover you. But why do we also have Colossians here? Let's see what I got note-wise here. Oh, there we go. There's your, there's your kenosis. Sorry, I'm not used to this doing two things at once here. Colossians, um, why do we put the two of these books together, and even Philemon as a part of this? Well, who's the author of Colossians? That's pretty easy. It was Paul. And uh, what was the date that was written? Same date. Between 60 to 62. And who were the recipients? A slightly different church, Church at Colossae. But it was, again, to a church that um, was out there that, that needed to be taught better. 
the recipients at uh, Church of Colossae. He never visit, visited Colossae. It wasn't a, a place that he ever had a chance to go to. And uh, that's okay. He didn't have to. He knew them well enough from what he heard about them. Um, it had been a f- founded originally by uh, a, a new convert from Philippi, I believe. Epaphras and possibly even Philemon were a part of that, that planting of that church in Colossae. Uh, the Colossae is near Laodicea, um, which is where Paul went on his second and third missionary journeys. And he actually traveled all around the city a, a couple, two different times. So he went around it, never went right, right to it. Um, the city itself was eventually destroyed uh, just soon after this letter was written in the, in the 60s, probably the late 60s. So God was going to punish the city in some way, shape, or form, going to affect them and change them. It eventually would be rebuilt, but uh, uh, they had some, some stuff ahead of them would be uh, some challenges, I'm sure. Uh, all right. So the historical and theological themes. The first is the person of Christ. The person of Christ is very strong, talking about who Christ is and what he did for us. In uh, chapter 1, we just start off right away with that. Verse uh, 15 through 18. And this is a, a classic passage that uh, we all should almost have memorized. He, this is talking about God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are invisible in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions were created through him. Uh, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that all things he may have the preeminence. I mean, that is Christology there of who, who Christ is. We get other passages too, 9 through 10. Again, we get some very strong understanding of who God is, who Christ is. Uh, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily and uh, you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. So we know that's who, who God is, we, Christ is. Uh, we've got a lot of thing, uh, themes that are covered in there. We also see, secondly, the work of Christ. Uh, that's what is actually Christ doing in people's lives. And what is it that causes that? So the first part of that is the cross. The cross should be a standard portion of that, something that's important for us. Um, and he, by... It's hard to read. i got too many notes in my Bible. I can't read over them. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. So we know that what Christ did on the cross is what gives us this, uh, this ability to serve him and to love him. His death. We hear about that. It, we need to know these things, that in fact Christ did die, that he was ri- risen from the dead. We develop a lot of strong theology because of this. And that's uh, chapter 1, verse 22, 2.11 and 20 and 3.3 3 give us uh, his death. Of course, you have the death, you have to have resurrection. So it's the whole gospel story is in here. His resurrection is chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 12, and 3.3. Those are important themes that just Paul had to pound in so we understand them fully. Next theme would be the union of Christ with Christians. We are unified with him, in union with him, when we are saved at that moment. Chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Come on. To them God willed to make, to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You might recognize this verse. Him we proclaim, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. Right there is a very important theme. We are in Christ. We are un- united in him. So that's a really important verse that uh, we all love. False teaching is also addressed. The church in Colossae is one that we had to always, he always had to watch all of them do, have to be warned of that, chapter 2, verse 8. Um, and it goes through a whole section there. 
all the way through verse 23 that uh, is a warning. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principle of the world, not according to Christ. And this one still holds so well today. So easily are we pulled aside by winds of doctrine, things that might sound good. Yeah, you sprinkle a few Bible verses on it, it sounds good, but it doesn't agree with the rest of Scripture. False teachers, we have to watch for them. So that's, Paul calls that out real strong here. And then we're also called, as a, one of the themes is to Christian conduct. We should be acting as a Christian in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, through, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. covers what that is. And that's a, a great section we all use regularly when we want to go back and look at uh, really how we are to live. Um, that's the section where we get a, what wives should be doing, what husbands should be doing, what workers should be doing, what children should be doing, all the way up to chapter 6 there. Um, other Christian conduct, uh, there's other, our walk. What should our walk be like? How we walk circumspectly, recon, recognizing what's around us. So there's a lot of really important things there. The purpose... Christians were taught about Christ and their union with him and were exhorted to have their conduct flow from from that union with Christ. So if you are in Christ, you should then have a life that matches that, is what he's saying. And I think that kind of makes sense. We need to be exhorted to do that regularly. So we're taught about Christ. Here's the facts about him who he is as Christ and all of his characteristics, then because we are now in union with him, then we need to have a conduct that flows from that union in Christ. Otherwise, we're just false in what we're doing. We're not living out what we should be living, showing that we are unified with Christ. Literary structure... um, Fairly simple. Uh, First chapters 1 and 2 is the sufficiency of Christ in doctrine. So there's a lot of solid doctrine in there. And is Christ sufficient for us? Is there everything we need in Christ? Yes is the answer. Uh, We see that very clearly um, because we're getting all this Christology on who Christ is and how we should act because of him, you know, of who... um, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. I mean, that's just who he is. It's just rapid-fire bullets being fired at us of who Christ is. That's the sufficiency of Christ. And then the second half, chapter three through, 3 through 4, is the sufficiency of Christ. Whoops. I guess I did there is sufficiency of Christ in, in duty. What is our duty? And we can accomplish what God has given us to do. What our duty is, we can because we know that Christ is sufficient for us. He is our hope. He gives us the power and the ability to do that. I am sorry, but the air conditioning is only working on one side here. You guys feeling that? I'm feeling it. I don't sweat very often, but this side we have a waterfall that happened on Saturday for our men's breakfast that uh, would be pouring water down here if we had the other AC on. So sorry about that, the heat here. Okay, that's the literary structure. Going through this rather fast. Um, next is the Colossian heresy. And uh, I wish uh, Jay had the time to talk about this because I'm sure he could just go up one side, down the other. Now, see, you've had the joy of having Jay teach from you, and he gets off on these rabbit trails, doesn't he? And it's like, whoop, where'd he go? Squirrel. And uh, it's wonderful. I have I've loved Jay doing that. And I know that on this one, he would probably have uh, about 18 pages and four months worth of, of preaching on this. But uh, I'm going to do the best I can to explain this. And uh, Jay, you can come up and, and correct me when I'm, I'm done, okay? I appreciate that. Um, so what was the nature of this uh, Colossian here? Was it a Gentile issue? Was it the Gentiles had a problem and we needed to they needed to understand that the Gentiles weren't getting with the program or was it the Jews that weren't getting with the program and they were just stuck with the law and uh, you had to keep the law the Gentiles weren't keeping the law and uh, was that where the controversy was and uh, we see that there's a whole issue here regarding the law keeping that the Jews wanted and then the pagan rituals that was brought in by those who were living in that area. And you try and mix the two together. And, and how do you balance that? Because we didn't have much teaching before this explaining doctrine and how to deal with both sides of that. Remember, Paul had gone back to Antioch on, after his first missionary journey, and they had the Jerusalem Council to talk about this and to walk through, okay, do we have to keep the law? Do we have to be circumcised, uh, the Gentiles? So this Colossian heresy was very Jewish. Colossians 2.6 kind of talks about this. And you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
This is all you need. I'm sorry, verse 16. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Don't be judged by these things that you're trying to keep. We don't need to be judged by the law and what those things were. Let no one pass judgment on you because of your keeping it or not keeping it. For the Gentiles, they needed to know that. And the Jews needed to know that so that they weren't saying, oh, they're not keeping the law, they're supposed to. So this is a great way to have done this, was to talk about this to them. And it was very clear. But then in, in 2.18, we see that this is very Gentile of an issue as well. It says, that, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind. So there's the other balance side of it. We, you don't need that side of it. Where does it fall? It falls with No, don't worry about these things. We are to be following after Christ in obedience and don't offend your brother is where we we get a lot of this. So it wasn't, uh, we now can look back because we have all of scripture that helps us understand this. But back then, this was a real challenge for the Jews and the Gentiles to understand how they work with this and what they're supposed to and not supposed to be doing. Um, Especially like angel worship, they weren't supposed to be doing that. Um, You've got to remember that Colossae was a place where there were numerous different religions and philosophies that just thrived there. It was just a melting pot of all these different concepts that were always being thrown around. And, and people were trying to you know, show how, how smart they were or, or how much information they had. And there was a syncret, syncretistic religious movement that was affecting the Colossian church. They were bringing in other things from other places that were non-biblical. That was affecting the Colossian church. Syncretism is the amalgamation or combination of different elements of different religions. So let's just take this part of that religion, this part of this one, and let's combine it into something that will make everybody happy. And that's kind of what was easily happening within the Colossae church. And Paul's saying, no, you can't do that. You have to stay away from those things. By just adding the gospel to those items, mixing in elements of Judaism and either occult practices, you're not going to get to Christ. You're going to get a watered-down gospel. And don't we have that today? Aren't we having that where church after church, they bring in something else? Oh, you have to do this. You have to do that. Or um, hearing from the Holy Spirit. That's where that falls into, well, are we hearing it from the Word of God or not? An easy way to think of syncretism is... You're throwing in everything but the kitchen sink. Okay? You throw in the sink. Syncretism. Just think of the sink with things mixing. It all goes down the garbage disposal, doesn't it? Except for Christianity. True religion stays. So think of syncretism that way. Of this uh, Colossae heresy, there was not a solid consensus. There still is not of exactly the nature of this heresy. Exactly what it was that was going on. Um, no one left an ancient guide to the Colossian heresy that we could read and say, okay, here's what the problem was that they were having there. But there were some elements that we can recognize from Scripture that we do know happened. And this is really chapter 2, verse 8 through 23, is where, where all this is being de- addressed. Um, so first we know there was a deceptive philosophy. There was some philosophy that was close isn't that what Satan loves to do? Make something that's really similar to the gospel. It's kind of like if you want to understand as a banker, you want to understand $100 bills and whether they're accurate, they're fake or not, what do you do? You don't study a bunch of non-fake $100 bills. You look at the real thing, don't you? And you study it and you look, these are the things I know about it, rather than saying, here's the fake ones and, and we're going to study them. No, if you know what the truth is, you study the truth. You don't need to go back and study these other things. So we can recognize those things. They're deceptive philosophies. There's no indicator exactly what the exact nature of this philosophy was, but it was an organized system of some sort uh, that was very attractive to humankind. And it's real easy to make us feel like we are doing something, isn't it? You know, when we're trying to add something to our Christianity when we're trying to earn or please God um, that's what happens is we we get a syncretism involved in we know that it was according to human tradition uh, chapter 2 verse 8 says that um, it was a human tradition that had been developed there it was likely demonic in nature too Satan loves these kind of things and we don't know exactly how Satan works but um, chapter 2 verse 8 
covers that as well. We kind of can, can see that here. Beware, lest anyone cheat you, philosophy and deceit. Uh, empty deceit according to traditions of men, according to the principles of the world, not according to Christ. Anything that's not of Christ is going to be of Satan. 1 Timothy 4.1 addresses that as well. Um, we get an idea that Paul wrote there. Now, the Spirit expressly says, in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And and this would have been one of them. We know that. We know that this teaching did not depend on Christ, because it was something that was extra-biblical, and it didn't depend on Him. And, And that's why in the first chapters, we're looking at Christ, who He is. We know Him. We recognize that real $100 bill. And then you look over here. This isn't the real, real thing. Oh, it's easily noticeable. It was This controversy was dependent on food and holy day restrictions. Verse 16 kind of tells us that. Uh, some Jews were likely proselytizing and trying to create some sanitized version of Judaism. Saying, oh no, you've got to keep this and do this. And, and these Sabbath and, and these kind of ways he had did certain things. And I think Christ set a real great example um, of exactly what we should and shouldn't be doing there. By now, some of the Gospels have been written and they're able to read some of these to see exactly Christ's words. So we have that. Um, we also know it's some type of asceticism or a self-righteousness, self-denial that was going on that was a part of this that made these people special. It's almost like there's the, the Christians and then there's the real Christians that are a step above. And that's what they're kind of doing. And we do that easily sometimes in churches, those that have the Holy Spirit and those that don't in some of the charismatic churches. It separates and we don't want that. That's not truth. It was part of this philosophy. And somehow it focuses attention on angels. We see that in verse 18. So don't know exactly how all this fit together. It was characterized by spiritual pride. Hey, I have this and you don't. You know, you're not one of these. So we want to be careful we ever do anything that splits a church and says that, well, there's the haves and the have-nots. No, we're all in Christ. And we all are filthy rags compared to him. It was losing a connection with the head, who Christ is. Chapter 2, verse 19, it talks about Christ being the head um, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So Christ is that head and they were missing that of putting Christ up there. They were putting other things up there. We also know it's a, a propagation of some rules and regulations outside the law of Christ. So they said, hey, let's just make this so we're better than, we have this. I grew up in a very, very strict environment in a Baptist church as a young kid and went to the school that they had. And they had these sets of rules that you just had to obey. I couldn't wear jeans. You had to wear a belt. Your hair couldn't touch your ears. It went on and on and on of all these little nitpicking things. And it just made you righteous if you were one that did that. As opposed to, my heart was evil. <laughs> Although I looked on the outside, may have looked you know, exactly to fit that look that they wanted. The pastor had 12 kids, and those kids were the terror of the church and the terror of the school. But they had the look, and they made sure their hair didn't touch their ears, and the women, the girls could kneel down, and their, their dress would touch the, uh, touch the ground. I mean, they had just such strict rules. Setting up other things that were non-biblical of things that we had to do as the picture of what spiritual growth is. That's false. We can't do that. There's also directly questioning the supremacy and sufficiency of the headship of Christ. Is Christ enough or not? So we we say Christ is enough. We have to rely on him. We can't look at these other rules and regulations and whatever it involves regarding angels and and, uh, visions. That was another one. Undue attention to visions was in there. Um, I got a vision I didn't. Well, we've heard that. Haven't we, from some people, God told me this. Well, no. What does Scripture say? That puts you above everybody else because you have had a vision. Well, no. We have to look at what Scripture says. And I'm just so glad that Paul was real clear on these things. It helps us to see the the, um, doctrine that's presented here of how we are to apply all of the different uh, information in Scripture. So that was the Colossae controversy, the best that, that we can tell what it was. The bottom line, though, is someone or some group of, of someones is emphasizing the gospel plus Christ. You have to have Christ plus this. You have to have a, this little extra bit here. That's the problem. It's a human tradition. It's a self-abasement and a self-denial that will gain God's favor. And it goes exactly opposite of what we're doing. It's out of a heart, out of love, out of a desire because of what he's done for us. I must respond. I must do these things because God has just put this within me. And uh, there was, part of this was a reintroduction of required holy days. 
there was a, a focused attention on angel-aided worship as well. And then uh, the focus, uh, the main point here is that something very Catholic charismatic-like is what you would see this as. A combination like heresy going on in the church. And Paul said in 2.8 that this is empty deceit and it brought, was brought about by demons. So that's where we need to be most careful. We don't fall into a similar situation there. Uh, I know that Chapter 2, verse 8, we use that in parenting whenever we're teaching our parenting classes, Kathy and I. Because in parenting, it's so easy to grab what the world has to say. Hey, that sounds good. I'm going to add that in compared to what Scripture tells me and how I should be training my kids in the truth of Scripture. You know what? I heard this thing. It's a great idea. And um, next thing you know, you're bringing in a philosophy that's the world's philosophy. And you're teaching it and you're making your decisions based upon it for your kids and the way you're raising them. And uh, it's very easy. Anytime... You're looking at an information on how to make determinations, how to live your life, how to choose wisely. Look the underlining basis of it. Is this a philosophy of the world or is this a philosophy of Christ? I think that's ultimately what we get here out of this section. All right. A second issue we have is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. And this... um, See where his notes are here. Um, we see that, uh, that that Christ is called the firstborn of all creation, um, but does that mean he's the first thing created? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he was created. We have to be really careful here. This is having to do with chronology, possibly prior to everything, firstborn before everything, or is it a positional a supreme over? Um, when we look at the verse related to this. Um, so, or is it a combination of chronology and positional? And that's kind of where we fall. Uh, complete preeminence, meaning God has full control. He is above, tops, the highest of all of this stuff when it comes to any of these issues re- related to creation. Our difficulty comes when we look as, in our Western world, looking at the word firstborn. We see a word like firstborn. We think, okay, they're the firstborn. They're the right for all of the privileges and everything else. Especially because of Scripture, we have illustrations of the firstborn. Isaac was referred to as Abraham's firstborn, wasn't he? But was Isaac the firstborn? Mm -hmm. Ishmael was, right? So Isaac had the positional preeminence that we can look at. Another illustration, um, Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, they're called the sons of Joseph. I'm sorry, I don't know the reference for this. Do you know the reference, Jay? Not finding it here. I'm, I'm... I don't have it in my notes here. Yeah, Jeremiah 31, 9. There's a couple different places. But um, the son, they're called the sons of Joseph. Manasseh and Ephraim, sons of Joseph. Jacob, Israel, when he's about to bless Joseph's son, he brings him in, brings in his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, in Genesis 48, 14. And it says, And Israel, that is Jacob, stretched out his right hand a blessing, and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. What's going on here? Crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn, but he didn't put it on him, he put it on the secondborn. Manasseh was the firstborn. So why did he do that? Well, we can look at this interpreted in Jeremiah 31.9. With weeping they shall come, with pleas of mercy, I will lead them back, talking about the Jews returning, I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father of Israel, and to Ephraim, my firstborn. So God still goes back and calls Ephraim the firstborn, even though it was the hand of blessing that did it, not the age. So we can see many times in Scripture, multiple times, where firstborn is not referred to as the very first one out of the womb. Instead, it is the one that is given the preeminence here. There's a commemoration of God choosing the least, isn't there, throughout Scripture, and making him the most. And we're seeing that here again. The firstborn has to do with preeminence. So when you see that, don't be fooled. Make a little note by their firstborn. It's not the first one out of the womb. It's the one that has the preeminence. And just as Christ was not born, he was from all time. We have to recognize that. 
Okay? So that's some of those interpretive issues. We're flying through stuff. See, if, if Jay was teaching, we would still be way back in Philippians. <laughs> Steve might have gotten through both of them. He has all three of these set for one day. I think they're just trying to get you moving ahead in BTI so you get finished sometime so that we're doing three chapters in one, uh, in one week. We're going to do Philemon as well. We have time? Let me see what time it is. Okay, we do. Philemon. Well, why do we throw this one in? Hmm, who's the author? Paul. When was it written? 60 to 62, same time when he's in prison. And the recipients here is Philemon and the church at Colossae. In uh, Philemon. So this letter was likely read to the whole church with Philemon present. So it's being sent to them. And here comes this letter, and it's from Paul. Ooh, we got a letter from Paul. This is cool. And Paul appeals in this thing. It indicates that Paul intends to come to visit. He wants to come there, as we see in the first verse there. I wished I could come. Um, but uh, he says, uh, it's sent through Tychicus, who brought the letter, and he also brought Onesimus with him. And we're going to find out the characters here. You probably know this already. So here is this guy, Tychicus, shows up with Onesimus at this church. And this is a very dramatic scene. So this church is a kind of a small church, and here's another guy in there, Philemon, and it's written to him. So Philemon's on one side of the church, and here's Onesimus and Tychicus, maybe up front, because they're with uh, the leaders of the church there with, uh, with them. Dramatic scene. Paul is writing from the perspective of a prisoner, isn't he? He's a prisoner in prison during this time. We see that throughout here. He's talking and pleading to that in verse 1, um, verse 9, verse 13, and, and, and verse 13 there. So we see that he's a prisoner. Philemon, though, on the other hand, this is Paul's ministry companion. Has been for years. He was his companion, we know, in verse 1 and verse 17. He, he had been working with him in the past with this guy, uh, Philemon. And he's a, a faithful Christian. We know that in verses 1 to 2, 4, 7. There's a bunch of verses there talk about Philemon, how he has been a very faithful servant with Paul. So Paul's going to say, this is who you are, Philemon. I love you to death, and and these are the things that you've done. I just so appreciate you. Um, But Onesimus is what is written about. He is the former useless slave of Philemon's. So Onesimus was his slave, and he left. He became useless to him because he left. He was probably at a young age when he left. He ran away, but his name, interestingly, Onesimus means useful. So useful was useless to him. So it's kind of a play on words there. This is his converted slave. Philemon didn't know it. His slave had ran away and somehow ran into Paul, got saved, and his heart got changed, and he's a whole different man now. And so now here's his runaway slave who shows up at church across the way and going, "Uh uh-oh, we got a problem, Houston. You know, how are we going to rectify both of these guys here? And Paul was just brilliant in this letter, what he did. He appealed to Philemon to accept this newly converted slave. Accept him now as a brother in Christ rather than your possession you used to own who ran away and probably even took money, probably stole from him when he left. He's now a brother in Christ. He's now a partner in the gospel. You need to rectify this in your mind, Philemon. So he asked Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul. Well, that's a pretty big order. I mean, Paul would train Philemon and he was like his mentor. Instead of sending him to the slaves' quarters, put him in a guest room. So this guy shouldn't have anything to do with it. He's the one that ripped me off. And, and Have you ever had anybody in your life that's done that, who's really hurt you and really done something that just blew your circuits? And now God brings that person, gets them saved and brings them back to you. How are you going to handle that person? How are you going to deal with them? That's what's happening here. The emphasis is not on Paul asking Philemon to free Onesimus as a slave, although that's kind of implied, free him from the obligations he previously had. The emphasis instead is on accepting Onesimus now as a part of Paul's ministry. This is my brother who's been so helpful to me and my ministry team, and he's now free and an equal partner, really, in serving the Lord. So you've got to change your mind, Philemon, and think about this guy. Even though it might have been 10, 15, 20 years, it's, his life has changed. But uh, now how are you going to deal with this? So Onesimus, though, here's the big problem. He had done harm to Philemon. He had hurt him. 
He had stolen from him. He had done something. And now Paul's asking him to charge that to Paul. Whatever he did, however he hurt you, charge that to my account. I'll pay for it. I'll deal with it. Do it. Do to me as if you would do to him. Let, let me take that pain from him. Almost sounds like what Christ does for us, right? But, here's a but. Paul reminds Philemon of the incredible debt that Philemon owes to Paul because he brought him to the gospel. So you do something like that to me, to him, Paul, or to me, remember that you got saved through my ministry and we now are in Christ together. It's just a brilliant way that Paul, Paul did this. It shows a tremendous confidence, though, in Philemon that a response of grace and of mercy would be outcoming. And Philemon is going to be obedient and gracious. I really believe that he, he was. Think about it. Here this guy comes into church, and he's your former slave, and this guy's been taught by Paul for months and years, who knows? And he's learned the Word of God, and he's brilliant. He really understands Scripture. He now becomes a teacher, and you're going to sit under him? Imagine that as Philemon. This is the guy that ran away from me and owes me some money, and I'm going to sit and learn from him? Yes, and you're going to learn, learn willingly, and, and you're going to, this is going to be just a, a, a thing that's going to change your heart because of it. So just a great book for this. Steve's taught on this well, and uh, you can go back. It's a shorter series. I don't think it's 50 weeks. It's probably 49 or something. Um, <laughs> but just a great, great chance to, uh, to see this story and how it unfolds. So literary structure is pretty easy. Uh, there's your purpose. Did I get the purpose already? No, I didn't. Purpose. I don't even have that in the notes. Okay. Well, there's the structure. I guess the purpose, Paul appealed to Philemon to accept his newly converted slave Onesimus as a brother in Christ and a partner in the gospel. That's pretty easy. That's all he's doing is just appealing to him. And it's a great example of us on how to appeal to authority, how to appeal to somebody who we're struggling with, how to appeal to somebody who you've sinned against and how to approach them. We, we need to do that. We need to learn to do that. The structure... Um, first is the praise of Philemon. So he goes in, before he goes and blasts him and tells him, hey, here's what you need to do, he gives some praise to him. That's important to do that. Remember that when you're going to approach somebody and you want to deal with an issue of confrontation. Give some praise. Hey, it's just fantastic what you've been doing in ministry. Really appreciate you and the way you serve the Lord. But then he has a plea in uh, verse 8 through 17. I need you to consider this. Would you look at this this other way? Take this guy back. And then a pledge. The latter part of it, 18 to 25, is a pledge on what he, Paul, will do and how he loves him. And then the rest of the, of the chapter there. Count me as a partner, um, is what he says. I'm writing with my own hand. I'm going to repay you. Uh, let me have joy in the Lord because of you doing this. So just a great way that, uh, that Paul sandwiches that together with his plea for Philemon in the middle. Um, got some lessons that we can learn from this. First, the gospel is the great equalizer, isn't it? There are neither Jew nor Greek or Gentiles. There's neither bond nor free. We, we can see all of that lived out in here. The gospel of Christ is the great equalizer. Philemon could literally still have been a slave, yet a minister of the gospel in the church at Colossae, which is great to see. Um, this letter, secondly, illustrates the high standard of forgiveness based in the gospel of Christ. We should have a very high level of forgiveness of others. Philemon himself was forgiven of all his sins, so there should be an expectation for him to do the same to others, right? I mean, that's given. Um, we also get an amazing testimony, the transformative power of the gospel. Onesimus goes from a runaway slave and a thief to a minister of the gospel. And we hear, hear stories about guys that are like that, who've just come from a life where God does, not a complete 360, does a 180 in their lives. I've heard somebody refer to, oh yeah, this guy, he just, he was going the wrong direction. He did a complete 360. No, that means he's going the same way. He did a 180. <laughs> um, Onesimus is a living example of the life change described in Colossians. So the book of Colossians we see was written about the same time. Here's an example. This church, uh, the letter written to Colossians was spread to other churches and may have also come to, uh, to the church here that, uh, where uh, um, Philemon was. But we see Colossians lived out here. He's an example of this change. He's a living testimony against the Colossian heresy. You don't need to have this plus. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the way we have to view ourselves. So when we've got those trite little things between other Christians in the church or outside the church or family members, who are we in Christ? How can we hold grudges and hold things against others? If this can happen, or God can change somebody's heart, and he's changed our hearts, how much more so we should be forgiving of our brothers and sisters? So the big question is, what did Philemon do? What happened out of this? Do we have the rest of the story? For those old enough to remember Paul Harvey? Not many of you. So we know that he obeyed Paul in this. We know that he did. Philemon would have been included, would not have been included in the canon of Scripture if he had not. This would not have been here. If, oh, yeah, why'd they put this book in there? And they, everybody knows that Philemon, oh, yeah, he didn't accept him. It was a big fight between the two of them, and they shot it out in the back streets after church that day. No, Philemon not only forgave Onesimus, but he sent him off as a freed man. Not only as a slave to Christ, but now a minister of Christ. So we believe that that happened. Uh, because otherwise this wouldn't have been in Scripture. What about Onesimus? What happened to him? Do we have any information? What happened to Onesimus? We do. A number of theories, but the strongest tradition with the most evidence is that Onesimus was actually a very young man when he came to faith in Christ, maybe his late teens or early 20s. And this might explain his impulsive desire to go run away because, oh, no, I'm out of here. Um, slave, I have this debt. I'm going to steal stuff and, and leave. But about 50 years after the writing of Philemon, the early church father, Ignatius, was being taken to Rome for execution somewhere between 107-110 A.D. Um, and while he stopped in Smyrna, a city uh, nearby, the bishop, we'd say the head elder, the um, pastor, the senior pastor, the leader there, of the church of Ephesus came to visit and encourage Ignatius. And so they're chatting, and Ignatius wrote a thank you letter for the visit back to the church in Ephesus. And he quotes, and he mentions in detail Paul's letter in Philemon, quoting almost exactly, using the same pun that Paul did in Philemon 12, that his visit from their head elder was useful and profitable to him as he faced death for the case of Christ. Isn't that neat? Ignatius mentioned the name of the church leader in Ephesus that influenced him, whose name was Useful. Fourteen times he thanked God in that letter for Onesimus. So we know that he did. He was called the pastor of Ephesians. Onesimus himself was martyred by Emperor Trajan. Shortly after this, faithful to the end, he was a slave of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So we have hope. This book, small little book, a great place just to rest your heart occasionally. When you want something short, quick to read that really encourage you to know how you should live. How should we live with others around us who are difficult, who have hurt us? I think this is a great book. That being said, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord God, uh, all scripture is given by your inspiration and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I pray that we would be men and women that are fully devoted to you because of that. That we can rest upon the truth of your word. We can know it. We can study it. We can learn it. But most importantly, we can live it. So use these books in our lives as we read them in the future, as we uh, apply them to our lives to be of glory to your name so that you are the one that gets praised. And we look forward to being in heaven, meeting some of the people mentioned in these books, Yodius and Syntyche and, and uh, Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. What a joy to just see how God, you have transformed their lives and to know that it's been done with a purpose, and that is to encourage our hearts to serve you, to love you more. May we do that today. Look forward to hearing the word even more in your name. Amen.